0: I know a couple of people who are disproportionately overpaid relative to the amount they work and the value they contribute. They have been corrupted by that money. I never want things to be easy. I never want to be overpaid. I always want it to be hard. I always want it to be a struggle, no matter how much I'm getting paid or how successful I am. I always want it to be a challenge because what happens is, is when you get to that point where you're making that money and it's so easy, then you become unmoored and you just kind of have this existential crisis and you don't really know what your purpose is. I've seen this happen to people a bunch of times and I don't want it to happen to me.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. But you knew that it is a great day to be alive. And if only because I have a fantastic interview to share with you today with a gentleman named Jared Dillian. Jared is a former Wall Street trader turned professional writer. He writes lots and lots of interesting things, including books and an investment newsletter for professional investors, institutional investors, you might even say, called The Daily Dirt Nap, which is chock full of really insightful market trends and things like that, but also with a strong dose of Jared's hard-earned wisdom about life and the markets in general. We'll talk about him in just a second. Not that many items to cover before you today. Thank you for all the birthday wishes on the Facebook. I really appreciate it. I'm healthy. I'm alive. It's a good day. It's a good day to be alive. We've covered that. I also had a great time this past weekend opening for Collective Soul at The Roxy here in Atlanta. Three great sold-out shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Doing comedy in front of a rock band is a new thing. It's a lot of fun. It's different. It feels a little bit more dangerous because the crowd's like, what are you doing here? We didn't come to see you. We came to see Ed and the fellas sing their songs. Anyway, it was great, and I am truly truly grateful to ed and johnny and will and dean and jesse for having me on their show it was incredibly generous of those guys to share their stage with me and a lot of fun speaking of comedy shows i have uh let's see two this weekend april 2nd and 3rd at the uh, three actually two on saturday night at the omni comedy club at the battery here in atlanta i'll be there again on April 17th, and I'm headlining Madlife Stage and Studios in Woodstock, Georgia on April 22nd. That's the good one. To, these are all going to be great shows, but I'm doing a longer set at Madlife in Woodstock. So if you live out that way, by all means, please come and check it out. I'll put links to the shows in the show notes. Let's talk about Jared Dillion. Jared is a fascinating human being. I'm so grateful that my buddy Larry Cummins introduced me to his work Because I read his book on the flight over to Kenya over the holidays, and man, I tore through this book. I read like three books on that trip. It was a lot of airplane time for reading. But this was a fabulous, fabulous read. The book is called Street Freak, A Memoir of Money and Madness, and that is a book he wrote 10 years ago, which is interesting in and of itself that we're going to talk about a book that's over a decade old. He probably started writing it 12 years ago, but it's about his time as a trader at Lehman Brothers from 2001 to 2008. And it's really fascinating to learn, have more insights, not just how Wall Street functions from a technical perspective, but the mental game that traders play to gain an edge on the market. Really interesting stuff. A working class kid from the poor part of Connecticut, Jared Dillian somehow managed in 2001 to land a job as a trader at Lehman Brothers, the then prestigious investment bank that is no longer. He showed up on Wall Street wearing cheap suits from the men's warehouse and found himself largely out of place among the Armani-clad Ivy League set. But he loved trading, and he loved the math behind the trades, which made him a better-than-average trader, which in Wall Street earns you a lot of money. In this candid conversation, Jared shares frank insights into the incredible stress of trading and the mental health issues that became apparent as his career progressed. Those persistent mood swings turned out to be a symptom of undiagnosed bipolar disorder, which resulted in him spending three weeks in the psychiatric ward, a place he described as a very healing environment. He'll talk all about that in this conversation. He will also describe how, after Lehman went bankrupt, he pivoted into a very successful writing career. Today, Jared is the editor of The Daily Dirt Nap, an investment newsletter providing daily market commentary commentary and insights to traders and very serious investors he wrote that book street freak which i mentioned and i highly recommend by the way it is a gripping read describing his time on wall street he also has written a novel called all the evil of this world which i am looking forward to reading to by the way Tony duff who was guest number three on crazy money his blurb on the book was oprah would hate this book So if it sounds politically incorrect and you're into that kind of thing, you probably would enjoy all the evil in this world, and maybe we'll have him back to talk about that novel once I finish it. Jared graduated from the United States Coast Guard Academy and earned his MBA from the University of San Francisco. When he's not writing or taking care of his five cats, he is making music under the name DJ Stochastic. He lives in Pauly's Island, South Carolina. Links to the Daily Dirt Nap, his music, and his radio show are available in the show notes. Please enjoy this conversation with Jared Dillion. Jared Dillion, welcome to Crazy Money. Hey, what's up? Hey, we're here talking about crazy and money. And you're somebody that's just hit my radar in the last few months. A guy named Larry Cummings here in Atlanta brought you to my attention. And over the holidays, I read your book, Street Freak, which, is it weird to talk to new people who are just discovering a book you wrote a decade ago? Uh, You know what's funny is that that book has had a very long tail. It actually,
0: it didn't really fly off the shelves when it was released, but people keep discovering it as time goes by. And I would actually say the interest in the book is picked up like 10 years later.
1: That's so, funny. Yeah, it's very cool. So I'm going to go ahead and say that it's in my top four financial industry or Wall Street books of all time. Guess what the other three might be, Jared? Just throw, uh, throw some out there. Liar's Poker. Number one. Monkey Business. I haven't read monkey business, but it's very good, but you've That's brought it to my good. attention. One of them is written by a mutual friend of ours. Colossal failure of common sense. No, I'm still working on that as a personal mission, but it's Tony duffs. The buy side. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 And the last one is actually a novel written about a trader. Can you guess what it is? No, it's called ghost of Manhattan by Douglas Brunt. Do you know that book? No, I never heard of it. It's actually Megyn Kelly's husband, and I don't mean to diminish his role in the world by describing him by his famous spouse, but anyway, it's a great fiction book about life as a trader on Wall Street. You know, I have another book, though. I I wrote a novel. I know. I just downloaded that the other day. Tell me about that.
0: It's a filthy book. It's so filthy. It's awesome. It's, and it's actually, it's very literary. It's, it's really, I'm actually more proud of it than Street Freak. I like it better.
1: We'll have you back 10 years after that one was published. <laughs> I want to discuss your career and you had a career as a trader, then you became a full-time writer. And, and I want to discuss the whole kind of spectrum of your career. But can you start by just giving me a elevator pitch for what Street Freak was? Gosh, uh, Street
0: Freak is about my time at Lehman Brothers from 2001 to 2008, in between 9-11 and the financial crisis, and my struggle with bipolar disorder.
1: So quite the bookend of events that framed your time on the trading floor at Lehman and quite the personal journey that you went on. And I want to talk about that, but can you describe, first of all, how did you grow up and where did you go to college?
0: I grew up mostly in Connecticut,
1: My dad was in the Coast Guard
0: and I kind of moved around until age seven. My parents got divorced and then I moved to Norwich, Connecticut. You know, a lot of people think when they think of Connecticut, they think of Greenwich or Darien, but the eastern side of the state is actually very poor. It's a very poor part of the country, very rural. A lot of people don't realize that. So that's where I grew up and I wasn't getting any money for college. So I went to the Coast Guard Academy, which was free and I had to serve five years afterwards. So when I got out, uh, I was a lieutenant in the Coast Guard. Then I went to business school at the University of San Francisco, got an MBA, and I also had a job on the floor of the Peacoast Options Exchange working part-time. And I kind of parlayed that into the job at Lehman
1: Brothers. You described your upbringing as lower middle class, not quite poor, not quite middle class. When you were a kid, how did you define wealthy? Who was wealthy to you?
0: Uh... I didn't really have any wealthy friends until I got to high school. There was a section of town. I don't even really remember what it was called, but it was a small town, basically doctors. There was a girl I went to elementary school with. Her father was an ophthalmologist. Big time, the ophthalmology game. There was another kid who's father was a doctor, just stuff like that. Like there wasn't any, you know, there was nobody on wall street, no tech wealth, like nothing like that existed.
1: Yeah. It was the professional kids. I remember thinking when I was a kid that the dentist kid had it made, you know, like, yeah, that's the rich kid in school. Yeah. Yeah. So what drove your fascination with the finance industry and going to wall street?
0: Well, I didn't really have a fascination with it for a while. You know, when I was in high school, I was the kid that kind of resented you. If you had a jingle in your pocket, you know what I mean? Like I didn't like the rich kids, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder and I stayed that way for a while. And then what happened was I graduated from the Academy and I went to a Coast Guard cutter. I was stationed on a Coast Guard cutter. And one time we sailed down towards Mexico and we pulled into San Diego and I had a classmate on the ship. His name was Adam. And we pulled into port, and he goes and gets a newspaper and comes back and he starts reading the newspaper. And this is kind of like before the internet. So I said, what's the newspaper for? And he says, I'm checking my mutual funds. So I'm like, what's a mutual fund? So he explains it to me, but I didn't really understand. But I was like jealous of this guy because he was, you know, number one, he was making more than what was in a bank account. And number two, it was just like something, he had something that I didn't have, like he knew about something. So I said, I have to research this. And that's when I started doing a lot of reading on finance. Like there was a small bookstore in town and I was going to the bookstore and I was buying books about finance
1: and reading them. And that's when I really got interested but you were always very good at math. That was one of the reasons you chose the academy, correct? Yeah, I was a math major, actually. Yeah. When you were a kid, you just didn't have exposure to the markets. Were you politically aware? Did you know what was going on in the broader economy and politics? Was that on your radar at all?
0: I was somewhat politically aware, but like Norwich, Connecticut, it's not a Wall Street town. You know, the high school I went to, it's one of the best high schools in the country, but it's all humanities, fine arts, music, stuff like that. I did a lot of music in high school. So I didn't know that that was a career that that was available to me. It just was not,
1: I'd had no exposure to it at all. So you're what, 22, 23, when you first become aware of mutual funds and what's the progress from there to going to get your MBA?
0: Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that I was a pretty good writer and I was also going to the bookstore and getting short story compilations and stuff like that. So I told my mom that I wanted to get an MFA and start writing short stories and be a professor somewhere. And she said, that's a terrible idea. You're
1: not going to make any money. Nobody makes a living (laughs) writing anything. Come on.
0: (laughs) So that's when I decided to get the MBA. And yeah, I just, you know, like you said, I did a lot of math and I got really interested in it and I started investing my own money and I actually did very well investing. I was very good at saving you know, I was making about $20,000 a year. This was back in 1996. And I was saving over half my income. And I then got stationed in California and I bought a townhouse. And I flipped the townhouse in two years for like $130,000 profit. Nice. So I was 27 years old and I had $200,000 in the bank and no debt. And that was by never making more than $50,000 a year.
1: That's amazing. So how does a kid with no pedigree find himself at Lehman Brothers?
0: Yeah, I was really out of place. I was really out of place. I was buying my suits from men's warehouse. I just did not get it. I I had these glasses. I was wearing these military glasses. In the military, they call them BCGs which stands for birth control glasses, right? (laughs) Because they're so ugly. And I would wear those to my interviews. And like one of the guys was like, you got to knock that off. Take
1: those glasses off. That's hilarious. They're probably like hipster Brooklyn uh, hot (laughs) items now. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I was really
1: out of place because,
0: you know, a lot of the people that get jobs at these banks, they're all from New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, tri state area. Their families are on Wall Street. They've grown up around this their whole lives. That's what they know. And there's a whole culture and there's a way you dress. You wear, you know, Ferragamo ties and, you know, Brooks Brothers shirts and like Hickey Freeman suits.
1: I didn't know any of this stuff. It's a miracle that I got hired. At one point in the book, he said, I might as well have been wearing a barrel in suspenders, which was <laughs> one of the many LOL moments I had on the plane <laughs> reading your book because I could see it. I could, And I felt that way when I was interviewing in New York City for jobs in the media business and I was wearing these suits that were ill suited. They looked like patchwork suits that my grandma had made but it was like the best suit I had. I was like, I look good, you know? Yeah. And then after a year or so in New York, you're like, oh my God, I was a schlub. I had no idea. Yeah. So how did you earn your keep on the trading floor? How did you gain respect as somebody who belonged there?
0: Well, I started off doing index arbitrage, which was kind of a dying business. Basically index arbitrage is just like trading small differences between futures and baskets of stock. So I did that for a couple of years. My boss was actually a Navy guy. So it was a Navy guy and a Coast Guard guy. And we got along great. And we were kind of like the two misfits and we did pretty well. And then I did well enough that I was asked to run the ETF desk, which is exchange traded funds as you know, ETFs have exploded in popularity. And this was a time of like massive growth for the ETF industry. So my job was basically to grow that business. So when I took over the business, it had 22 million in revenues. And then when I left in 2008, it had 90 million in revenues.
1: So 4X in a few years. Yeah. In the great movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy, when he's trying to learn the business of the commodities trading business, he says, So, you guys are a couple of bookies. To what extent are traders gamblers?
0: They're gamblers. I'm not really a gambler. I'm the kind of guy that walks up to a craps table with 200 bucks and loses it in 15 minutes and then says, I'm done. <laughs> right. And, and, and then right. I'm just I, like, I don't really get any thrill out of it. You know what I mean? But there were guys that would bet 100 bucks in a coin flip. There were guys that were betting on American Idol. There were guys that were betting on Michael Jackson committing suicide
1: in 2003. <laughs> so, <laughs> Define People suicide. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole liar's poker mentality, right? That goes yeah. back years and years. If you weren't in it for the money, what were you in it for? Like, what it's was a, the draw? It's a super interesting job. It's like academically challenging. It's very cool.
0: It was a challenge to grow that business. The markets are just a game. You know, and it was a game that I got really, really good at. I talked about the 90 million we made in 2008, 30 million of that came from prop trading. What does that mean? Uh, that means basically not trading with customers, but just putting on trades for ourselves. Mm. You know what I mean? So
1: you're running your own book at that point. Run,
0: yeah. Running your own book.
1: Yeah. And a few years into it, you made $650,000. Not bad for a guy who's paying 110 bucks per suit with two free pairs of shoes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What'd you do with it? How'd
1: you handle that cash?
0: I didn't spend any of it. I did not spend money. You know, in 2003, I bought a house. I didn't buy a house in Summit or Short Hills or Greenwich or any place like that. I bought a house in a town called West New York, New Jersey, which was a Cuban neighborhood. And we bought a house like in the neighborhood, like in the middle of all the Cuban people. It was a cool house. I paid $430,000 on it. It was about 1600 square feet. And that's where I live when I was at Lehman Brothers.
1: What'd you sell it for when you finally sold it?
0: 370000
1: Oh, you took a loss on that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's all timing. That was, that was during the financial crisis. Yeah. Got it. So during this time, you're an intense human being, and you're dealing with a lot of ups and downs. And you say that the trading floor, which is 95% boredom and 5% sheer terror, is one of the last places where crazy people can actually thrive how did your mental condition help you or hurt you at work?
0: When I tried getting the job at Lehman, you know, I was telling people that I was insane, that I was a maniac, that I would would work harder (laughs) than anybody else. (laughs) Right. What I kind of didn't realize was that, you know, Wall Street is, it's all about fitting in. They don't want to hire insane people. So I don't really know why I got the job, but I was a very volatile person. I mean, I basically had undiagnosed bipolar disorder, so manic depressive illness. And, you know, I had periods of mania where I was extremely irritable and yelling at people and smashing phones and going nuts and stuff like that. And then I had periods of time where I was despondent, where I was, you know, not eating, where I was losing weight. If I had any other job, if I work for a consulting firm or any place else, My behavior would have stood out and would have been very obvious that something was wrong with me. But since I was working on a trading floor, I fit in.
1: How did that help you? And I don't mean to compare these two conditions, but they say that dyslexia is this condition that's shared by all these brilliant people and inventors and CEOs and entrepreneurs because they have to see different ways of solving problems. Did bipolar disorder help you see trades that other people might not have seen? I think so, actually. I think so.
0: I was a pretty good trader. I wouldn't say I was the best. I was not gifted in my current role as writing a financial newsletter. I do have an ability to see things and look at things in a different way that other people can't. So I'm kind of a divergent thinker. I'm not the best at managing risk. So that's why I really never had any ambition to start a hedge fund or run money or anything like that.
1: Did the grind of having all that pressure on you, the big positions hanging over you and sort of your worth to the firm, depending upon a couple of percentages moving up or down, is that a sustainable way to live?
0: No, it's a massive amount of stress. It's a massive amount of stress. You know, I quit. Like when Lehman went bankrupt, I had the opportunity to stay on at Barclays. You know, I was offered a job like people wanted me to stay. I could not work another day. The stress was so bad. Now, some people are better at handling it than others. I was not very good at handling it. An aspect of this, which a lot of people don't talk about, it's not necessarily the stress of the markets like you know stocks going up or down or things like that. It's regulatory stress. It's compliance. It's the fact that there's so many rules that you could literally press the wrong button and lose your career or end up in jail. And you're sort of walking this tightrope all the time. It's extremely stressful. For an ethics violation, you mean? Yeah. But the point is, is that you could screw up accidentally. You know, I'm not talking about like ethics, like doing something immoral. I mean- you could literally just push the wrong button. <laughs>
1: That's scary. Yeah. it's scary. You reached a low in your personal life while you're at Lehman and you actually spent some time in, in a mental institution. Am I, is that the right phrase? I don't mean to. I don't care. It's whatever. You All right. Call it. You were in the crazy bin. You were a loony is what, sorry. You spent some time in a hospital, but you said on the other side of it, it actually was hugely beneficial to understanding who you were and what you wanted to do with your life. How did you come to that realization?
0: Yeah, I spent three weeks in New York Presbyterian. I was suicidal. I had attempted suicide in 2003 unsuccessfully. And I kind of, that was during a depressive period. And then things got better and then things got worse. And I was suicidal again. So I checked myself into the hospital. Really, it was a very healing place. Just three weeks away from the stock market and in a quiet place where all I had to do was just. Eat, <laughs> just, you know, just think about stuff. Just to give you some perspective, when I went in, I was so paranoid that I thought that federal agents were coming to arrest me for trades that I made. And I was actually experiencing psychosis. I was seeing people that weren't there. I mean, it was very scary. Like, I really didn't know what was real. And, you know, after I spent a couple of weeks in the hospital, I said, you know, actually, maybe that didn't happen. Maybe that wasn't real. Maybe I just imagined it.
1: Was it bizarre to not spend your day watching the charts and the markets move up and down and not checking your email and not worrying about what your colleagues are throwing at you for orders you have to execute for their customers and things like that?
0: Uh, It was weird. You know, there was a TV in the psych ward and... I didn't really watch a lot of TV, but every once in a while, somebody would put it on CNBC. At the time, I had a big position in gold. So I remember one time I saw the TV and gold was way up. So I was was happy about that.
1: But there's nothing you could have done about it. Could you have executed a a sell order or anything? No. (laughs) That's got to be bizarre. That's got to be wild to not be able to do anything about it. Yeah. Did it give you a sense of realizing that all this doesn't really matter all that much and clarity on you might as well figure out what you really want to do. That's true to who you are. No, it took me many years to realize that it took me a long time and I'm still kind of figuring that
0: out. You know what I mean? Really? It seems like you've got it. It seems like you've got it dialed in, man. Well, you know, I've been a writer for like 13 years now and I've built a very profitable business. I got to be one of the highest paid writers in the world which is very cool. There's not Mm. that many writers that get paid this kind of money.
1: I don't know. I make a few hundred bucks every week writing articles. (laughs) Can you beat that?
0: (laughs) I think I can beat that. Oh, shit, man. (laughs) You got to teach me your thing. You know, when I left to become a writer, it wasn't so much that I wanted to become a writer is that I just wanted to get the hell off the trading floor. I was just in so much
1: pain that I just needed to get out. You were making over a million bucks a year at that point, right? Pretty close, yeah. Yeah, so you're pulling down you know, full stack as a young guy, but you have this one, you want to get out of there, but two, you've already started writing periodically and you have this feeling that you have something. What was that leap like? What did it feel like to say, no, this is where I need to go. What did you feel inside that gave you the confidence to do that?
0: When I left Lehman Brothers for the last time, when I walked out the door, it was the best feeling in the world. It was so awesome. I can't even describe it. I felt so free and I didn't hate it there. I didn't hate Lehman. I didn't hate the people. I loved my job, but just the stress, just to get away from that, you know, I have stress in my life now. It's just a different kind of stress. It's a little bit easier to manage. I don't have this feeling that something that's completely outside of my control, like a piano can land on my head and like kill me you know, like at any point in the day, right? (laughs) Um, So it's just a much better way to live.
1: No, we'll talk about the daily dirt nap, which is your financial newsletter in a minute. But in reviewing my notes of your book and some of the newsletters that I've read, you've said some of the very profound things almost in passing. And I wonder if you even know how profound they are, but anyway, I want to read some of them and you tell me what it means to you. If you would, most of them are from the book, except for the last one, toiling in obscurity and poverty is way overrated.
0: You know what I wrote that 10 years ago. I actually disagree with that, right now. Really? So how so I disagree with that. I know a couple of people who are disproportionately overpaid relative to the amount they work and the value they contribute, and they have been corrupted by that money. I never want things to be easy. I never want to be overpaid. I always want it to be hard. I always want it to be a struggle, no matter how much I'm getting paid or how successful I am. I always want it to be a challenge because what happens is, is when you get to that point where you're making that money and it's so easy, then you become unmoored and you just kind of have this existential crisis and you don't really know what your purpose is. I've seen this happen to people a bunch of times and I don't want it
1: to happen to me. You said you're making more than most writers on the planet, but you're earning it. You're feeling that tension on a day by day day basis that you really have to put your heart and soul, which, by the way, I see in your writing that is foremost in your mind when you're creating your product every day. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. Okay, next one. The only thing worse than being rich and dumb is being smart and poor. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I've been smartish and poorish, and it's overrated, I think.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, that speaks to the correlation between intelligence and income, right? And there is a correlation. I mean, smart people generally do make more money, but it's not a perfect correlation. You know, I know plenty of people that are smarter than me, super, super smart, and they don't have any money. And oftentimes that's by choice. That's by choice. You know, anybody has pretty much anybody in the world has the ability to say, pretend you're teaching fifth grade, okay, and you're making 40,000 bucks a year. And you say, this sucks. I'm only getting paid 40,000 bucks a year. You have choices. There are things you can do. You define yourself as an elementary school teacher, but you don't have to be an elementary school teacher. You can do anything, you know, but it's part of your identity. So what people have to do is, They have to break up their identity and do something different. So maybe you become a real estate agent. Maybe you go to business school. Maybe you do something else. I've done that a couple of times in my life. Like my identity was as a Coast Guard officer and I had to destroy that to become a traitor. And then that was my identity. And then I had to destroy that to become a writer. And now I'm actually on the radio. I have a radio show. So I've, I've reinvented myself
1: a bunch of times in my life. When you say you're destroying one manifestation of who you are, but you're actually getting closer to the core of who you are, right? In each one of those things, or is it just who you are during that period of time in your life?
0: Uh, I think it's who you are during that period of time in your life. You know what I mean? So but anyway, getting back to the original point of this correlation between intelligence and income, you know, it's really like money is a choice. You can choose how much you make. Look, there are things I could do in my current job to make more money,
1: and I choose not to do them. What's an example of that? And I don't want to get too personal, but I mean, like, are there well,
0: like for the, like the newsletter, right? I've never done any marketing
1: for the newsletter.
0: I've never done any marketing. It's all grown word of mouth, which is how I like it. I could do some kind of sleazy marketing campaign. Look, you can make uh, 500% on this stock and right. I could get fibers. Yep. You know, but I'm, I'm not
1: willing to do that. You use some good examples of people who are smart, but poor. How about some examples of people who are rich, but dumb?
0: I work with some of those people. There was a guy a Lehman. I didn't talk about him in the book. He was, you look at the guy, he's got like this greasy mustache <laughs> and uh, he's, a, he's a big fat guy. He's like 300 pounds. And you say, this guy belongs behind the lunch counter. Like literally <laughs> you like, you can picture him with an apron on yeah. and he's not smart. He was making millions of dollars a year. He was an options sales trader, okay? So he was basically like trading options. He had relationships with some of the biggest hedge funds in the world, and he was getting paid for those relationships. He was not sophisticated at all. He made a lot of money.
1: Now you're denigrating the sales profession, and I take exception to that. (laughs) it worked for me. Okay. Regarding compensation. This is when you're talking about negotiating or getting your bonus at the end of a year. I had no use for houses or cars. I got satisfaction out of being right. And I wanted a job where I could get satisfaction out of being right over and over again.
0: Yeah. I actually disagree with that 10 years later also as well. You know what I mean? That's kind of like a rule of trading is that it's not as important to be right as it is to make money. And so if you get yourself in a trade and you get into a fight with the stock market and you're determined to be right and the market moves against you, you're going to be you know, riding that all the way down to the bottom. So nowadays, I'm very pragmatic about it. I look at things in terms of money. It's funny. I haven't read Street Freak in a really long time. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. You write a book like, I mean, it was 2011 and here it is 2021. Like I've kind of changed as a person. Like I, you know, I actually don't agree with some of this stuff.
1: I think it's great, though, because I think these are informative in terms of what people expect out of money during any given time of their life. There's a, just a couple more. And we'll move on to the Daily Dirt nap. You talking about it was fun to be what you enjoyed about the gig was that it was fun to be a part of history, to remember the trade you put on the Russian debt default or the tech bubble. It's fun when people ask you for your advice. It's fun to be one of the richest people that nobody knows about.
0: Unfortunately, in my current career, I'm kind of a public figure. And I'm definitely not a celebrity or even famous, maybe famous in a very tiny way in a very niche industry, but um, it sucks. I would rather be making money anonymously. That is the way to go. The funny thing is, is that the whole GameStop thing, these guys at Melvin Capital, yep. who the hell ever heard of Melvin Capital before the GameStop thing? And then Gabe Plotkin is sitting in a congressional hearing like defending his firm's actions during the GameStop thing. Like he doesn't want to do that. I mean, that guy's probably worth, you know, 200 million bucks. He's got a house in Miami. Like he doesn't want
1: fame. Right, right. Well, but doesn't your success hinge to some degree on being known as a brand and being known as a voice? Not in finance, not in finance. Now, in my role in the
0: financial media, yes, it does. Mm -hmm. But as a trader, no, it doesn't. You can be completely anonymous.
1: All right. One last thing we're going to talk about daily dirt. Now. This is in reference to a piece you wrote about Mitt Romney. By the way, is it weird when people read stuff back to you from 10 years ago, especially when you make a call on a market like is being wrong in retrospect? Does that ever worry you or are you just you roll with what you said and the facts you had to use at the time? No,
0: I mean, you know, I change my mind all the time. I think I know what you're going to read, and I'm slightly embarrassed by writing this like 10 years later, but, you know, this is why in my newsletter, I don't maintain archives. Like people say, <laughs> people say can, I, can I read back issues? And I'm like, right. no, you
1: can't. Yeah. I don't know if you will pick, but what you wrote was, well, one of the things you wrote is that we are slowly inexorably going back to the Marxist ideal that if you have wealth and property, you must have obtained it by force or fraud, not by ability and work. And there was a piece about Mitt Romney in there? Yeah, well that was in reference to the beef people had with Mitt Romney. You were talking about criticizing Mitt Romney because he was successful, criticizing capitalism because of money, and criticizing money because yeah. of what people bought with money. I yeah. get it. This is asking you to go way back in the archive. I apologize. Yeah,
0: things have gotten worse since then. I mean, if you think about the Democratic primary, you know, Pete Buttigieg was considered to be unfit for the job simply because he had served in the private sector. Because he worked for
1: McKinsey, McKinsey, right? Yeah.
0: You know, Kamala Harris was going around saying, I have never worked in the private sector. So that's a good thing. No, it's not a good thing. I don't think that's a good thing at all. So that was back in like 2012 or something like that. Think about how far we've come in the last nine years. I liked Mitt Romney personally. And in terms of rich guys, he's worth about 250 million bucks. So he's pretty rich, but in this environment, like Look what happened to Bloomberg.
1: Oh, he got eviscerated. He got eviscerated. Yeah. You know, I went to see Bloomberg speak here in town, and, you know, I really like the idea that a successful person who ran New York City as well as anybody in the past 50 years might. Put himself up to be president and i saw him speak and i'm like this guy just doesn't have the charisma on yeah. a public stage and then elizabeth warren just eviscerated him in that first debate and it was like oh this is over the criticism shouldn't have been well you're a billionaire thus you are a bad person and that's what you going back to the Mitt romney quote like you are by definition behind every great fortune is a great crime and i think that has become accepted as a truth On a broad scale today, even more so than it was when you were writing about Romney. And I guess that's what we're talking about.
0: You know, one of Bloomberg's more famous quotes, and somebody asked him, what is your most favorite time of the week? And he said, my most favorite time of the week is Sunday night. He says, because I'm so excited to get back to work on Monday morning. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. I think about, as I've changed careers, I think about how I feel when I wake up in the morning and I look at my laptop or my phone, you know, am I excited about what's on the other side of that? Or am I dreading opening it and just thinking, I really wish I didn't have to deal with it. And I find that doing what I want to do, even though I'm making, you know, like basically no money right now, it's like, I'm really excited about what I get to do every day. I've got cool stuff on the other side of opening that laptop. That's a pretty good litmus test for me anyway. All right, let's talk about the Daily Dirt Nap. How did you start writing it? Why did you start writing it? And how did it evolve into a business?
0: It initially started when I was trading ETFs at Lehman. Since I was trying to grow the business, I was writing market commentary. And the market commentary was basically just me screwing around. I would write these (laughs) these funny Bloombergs. And I started out with a list of like 20 people and they were super entertaining. So people kept wanting to get added to my list. So at the time of the bankruptcy, I had a couple of thousand people on my list. I said, well, I think I can monetize that. So on my last day at Lehman, I said, I'm starting a newsletter who wants to sign up. And I got about 900 people that said they wanted to sign up. So it took me about a month and a half to like get an office and get computers and get my business license and all that stuff. And then when I actually started publishing, 700 of those people disappeared and about 200 people signed up.
1: <laughs> Was that the point you asked them to pay for it? Yeah. What did you ask yeah. them to pay at the beginning? 600 bucks a year. That's a meaningful chunk of change for a startup thing. Yeah. I've raised the price since then. It's 7.95 dollars 95 now. So. so a friend of mine is an innovation expert. And his theory, one of his theories, is that consumers will only buy something if they can't not buy buy it. What is it about the daily dirt nap that your customers can't not have? I don't understand that. What does that mean? Meaning if you cannot buy something, you won't buy it. So the only reason you will buy it is if you can't not buy it, you can't not buy food. You can't not drink water. You can't not have air conditioning. If you live in Atlanta, Georgia. So what is the essential element that your customers are buying? Well, it is
0: very addictive. I have customers who read every issue. I have subscribers that have saved every issue. They put it on their computer. They've been subscribing since the beginning and they've saved every single issue. It's addictive. And it's the divergent thinking combined with writing that is literary and entertaining to read. You know, also, my batting average in terms of trade ideas and stuff like that tends to be pretty high. You know, sometimes I screw up, but, you know, overall, it tends to be pretty good. And that combination is something that people really like. What font do you publish
1: your newsletter in? That's funny. Courier new. Okay. So it's not even like a newspaper. It's like a church bulletin. Why do you choose the layout that you choose? I've been doing
0: that since the beginning and I wanted it to have the feel of an underground newspaper. I should mention this when I was in high school, I was the publisher of an underground newspaper What'd you write about in high school? We were just jackasses, just complete jackasses. Uh So the regular newspaper was called the red and white. So we called ourselves the somewhat reddish and off white. (laughs) And we used to, uh, I mean, we were just complete jackasses. And we used to put these things in classrooms and hand them out and stuff like that. I'm basically doing that. I haven't grown up yet. I'm still in high school writing an underground newspaper. And it's not marketed. It's word of mouth. It's a secret club. It's a lot of fun.
1: God, isn't that interesting to think about, like, how do you make a really good living doing something that would have fired you up and made you proud in high school? Yeah. That is a cool litmus test. Do you think your readers buy it because they feel understood or they feel part of a club? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's what the cool kids are reading, kind of. Uh, It's what the weird kids are reading. (laughs) Right. The cool (laughs) kids. Right. (laughs) Who do you read for inspiration? In the financial world or anywhere? What,
0: whatever. Well, I'm really a writing snob. There's very few people that I enjoy their writing. You know what I mean? In the financial world, Matt Levine is super, super smart. He writes a newsletter for Bloomberg. Uh, I don't have time to read it all the time, but I really enjoy his writing. He's very talented at making complicated concepts simple and doing it in an entertaining way. He does a really good job. You know, in the literary world, my favorite writer of all time is a guy named Barry Hanna. Uh, Barry Hanna is a guy, if you talk to maybe the top 20 short story writers in the world, and you ask them who their favorite writer was, they would say Barry Hanna. Mm. But Barry Hanna never sold more than 7,000 copies of a book in his entire life. He is a genius. When I tell you he is a genius, if you read this guy's stuff, it is insane how good he is. He was just a prodigy. He passed away, I want to say 2009 or something like that. But he was from Mississippi. He was from University of Mississippi. Why do you think
1: his stuff never breached the chasm as it were? You have to be pretty smart to appreciate it. Fair enough. It's not going to be for those dumb, rich people that we talked about earlier. No, no, absolutely not. All right. One of your main passions outside of writing and finance is music. What does DJ stochastic mean?
0: Well, stochastic basically is a mathematical word for like a random process. You know what I mean? There's a branch of mathematics called stochastic calculus, and if you think about a stock, calculus, if you're taking a derivative of a function, you have a continuous function like y equals x squared, but stocks are not continuous functions, they're discrete functions because stocks don't move in a continuous fashion, they tick, they tick up or they tick down, they tick up or they tick down, so you needed another branch of mathematics to deal with these discrete functions, and it's called stochastic calculus that's really where option pricing comes from and stuff like that. So it's kind of an inside finance joke. What
1: does your writing and your music creation have in common?
0: It's all by feel. I don't have a lot of training as a writer. I'm kind of self-taught. It's the same with music. Although, you know, just to say something philosophical, I think we're all basically self-taught. I think we all teach ourselves stuff. So
1: what do you mean by that? Like, can you go deeper on that? Just with the
0: DJing, like, I didn't take a class there. Actually, there was a place in New York called DubSpot where you could take classes on DJing and stuff like that. I literally ordered the equipment. I had two CD players and a mixer and I just taught myself how to do it. I just experimented and taught myself and I got really good at it and that's the best way to learn anything.
1: I remember talking to my personal coach, which might be translated as therapist these days, about when I was starting comedy, he was like, when can I call myself a comedian? So how did you know you're good enough to start writing as a career? How did you know you were good enough to start performing as a DJ in clubs and stuff like that? If you don't have other people telling you when the time is right, you know, I thought I was good right away. <laughs> so did I, and I was wrong. <laughs> I, I thought I was better 10 years ago than I think I am today. I mean, the, yeah,
0: the- I mean with the music stuff, you know, one of the things about DJing is that older DJs are better because your taste develops over time. I mean, it's not really about playing the music. That's the easy part. The hard part is curating the music. So as you get older, your tastes get more refined and your curation gets better. It's the same thing with writing. You know, my writing is different now than it was when I wrote Street Freak. You know, Street Freak is a brilliant book. I don't write brilliant things anymore. I don't have this fluid intelligence. I have crystallized intelligence. I'm 47 years old. I'm wiser. I'm not writing brilliant things anymore. I'm writing wise things. Like everything has changed. I wouldn't be capable of writing Street Freak nowadays.
1: Like they say, mathematicians peak in their 20s. Is that the same kind of thing? Same, same thing. Same thing. Interesting. Yeah. What is the difference in what you want to contribute now versus what you were hoping to accomplish when you wrote that book?
0: Uh, Different stuff. You know, I'm working on another book. This is about personal finance and really helping average people with their financial lives. There's a lot of bad advice out there. You know, there's a lot of terrible advice out there. You know, my whole philosophy on money is that the goal isn't to have a million dollars. The goal is to minimize your financial stress. You know, if you have $200,000, but you're happy and you don't have any stress, that's better than having a million dollars. You know, everybody is capable of getting to a seven-figure bank account, but you might be miserable in the process and you might make other people miserable. So it's all about minimizing your financial stress.
1: Cool. What are you most passionate about? What am I most passionate about? Cats. (laughs) What about cats? I have five cats.
0: I rescue cats. I get rescues and I donate to cat shelters. I'm always in my wife's ear trying to get her to let me get more cats. I want more cats. I'm into saving cats.
1: Yeah. Why cats and not dogs?
0: I've never been a dog person. I'm just, uh, just always been into cats.
1: What do you think the difference is? I don't know. I don't know. You know, Mark Marin, the comedian podcaster he's a comedian that was been around for 30 years and his career was going nowhere 10 years ago or was treading water. And he started a podcast called WTF and it's become one of the biggest podcasts around. He also rescues cats and has several. And he talks about like, cats are hard, man. You got to win cats over. They're not easy. (laughs) Like dogs, right? The dogs are going to come to you. They're going to love you no matter what, but a cat, if you earn their affection, you've earned it.
0: Yeah. It's one of my cat's birthday today. So
1: Wendy, happy birthday. She's seven years old. Happy feline birthday, Wendy. Last question. Do you feel rich? I do. I do.
0: And it makes me very uneasy. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know what I mean? I grew up, like you said, lower middle class, right? So that's what I know. I was sort of like scarred by that. You know what I mean? There's nothing harder than taking down your standard of living, taking up your standard of living is very easy. It's pretty easy, isn't it? <laughs> taking taking down your standard of living is very hard. So I'm very careful. My business is going great in a lot of ways. You know, one of the things that we're doing is we just bought a piece of land, and we're going to build our dream house. You know, it's going to be about a four million dollar house. I'm going to have to take some risk to do this. I'm going to have to borrow money, which I don't like to do. I don't like to go into debt. I like to pay for things with cash and stuff like that. So the whole thing makes me nervous as hell. I've done the math a bunch of different times and I know I can do it. I'm just very, it just goes back to the way I was brought up, you know, when I was getting clothes at a yard sales and eating 65 cent lunches at school and stuff like that. Like it's, it's not easy. You
1: don't want to go back. No. How do you know if you're taking too much risk? I have a pretty big
0: appetite for risk when it comes to trading. I'll take pretty big risks. I'll put on big positions. Uh, I don't like to screw around with debt. And I like to think of, I kind of stress test it. You know, I say, okay, my income is X. What could happen to make my income get cut in half? Right? I kind of do these stress tests and that's, that's really all you can do.
1: Right. Well, Jared, I'm very happy I found your work. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Where can our listeners find out more about you and what you do?
0: If you want to check out the newsletter, it's dailydirtnap.com. If you want to check out my music, it's soundcloud.com slash DJ Stochastic, or you can just search for Jared Dillion. And if you want to check out my radio show or the personal finance stuff, it's jareddillianmoney.com.
1: Cool. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Thank you again for your time, Jared Dillion. Yep, thank you. All right, that was a lot of fun talking to Jared. I appreciate you guys hanging out till the end. Let's get to takeaways. I love the quote, I always want it to be hard. I never want it to be easy. That's kind of counterintuitive way to look at the world, especially from someone who seems as if he's earned his technical chops with all that time on the street and then his technical chops as a writer to think that when it starts to become easy We might become unmoored that we should always be pursuing a little bit of friction in our lives i think guy Raz talked about that too is one of the things that he took away from all his conversations with all those entrepreneurs is that friction in your life an appropriate amount of friction is a good thing that the more we're challenged the more we'll get out of ourselves and actually the more satisfied we'll be even if it makes for a little bit more challenging days and nights sometimes all right second one we were talking about smart poor people and dumb rich people And he pointed out that money is a choice. You can choose how much you make. And that is not an entirely popular point of view. But I tend to agree with it, that the people who are successful, for the most part, have said, I decide that I will be successful, and I'm going to go make it happen. Jen Sincero's book, You Are a Badass at Making Money, is a great place for a lot of people who have negative feelings about money and don't believe that they can make any of their own. And I think those two attitudes are highly correlated. I think she does a great job of pointing out that you know, money is a choice and deciding to be successful is the first step on the way to actually becoming successful lastly as i'm thinking about jared whom i didn't know about until uh, just a few months ago man there are so many great writers out there and i think jared is a great writer not just his technical stuff but uh, street freak is a great great read and i look forward to reading that novel don't stop seeking out great new writers you might not have heard of him might not know about him yet But they're out there and there's a lot of fantastic work to continue to consume. All right. We'll see you again back here next Tuesday. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.